0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokmarkle and coming up on the program, 10 houses of refuge were built in Florida between 1876 and 1886 to help shipwreck survivors. We'll talk with author
1: Sandra Thurlow. So many people are enthusiastic about lighthouses and even the life-saving stations that are uh, elsewhere in the country, but the poor houses of refuge are just not appreciated as far as their importance.
0: We'll discuss changes in the Florida Historical Quarterly over the past century.
2: We've had some really interesting kinds of changes in terms of the type of content that has been in the Quarterly and in the things that the Quarterly does besides just publishing the issues themselves.
0: And we'll look at efforts to save the historic Lee School in Leesburg. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: That great ship went down
0: Sandra Thurlow has written a series of books on the history of the Indian River region of the east coast of Florida, including Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge, Home of History. Her latest book, co-authored with Timothy Dring, is called U.S. Life-Saving Service, Florida's East Coast. The book looks at all of America's houses of refuge, which were all built in Florida. Ten houses of refuge were built by the U.S. Life-Saving Service between 1876 and 1886 to help shipwreck survivors. Sandra Thurlow.
1: Well, it's surprising how uh, sparsely it was populated. They called it a howling wilderness, especially the lower East Coast. And uh, so when shipwrecks happened, uh, the survivors usually came to shore or got to survive that far, but then their life was in question because there was no way to find civilization to get food or water, and they didn't know which way to go. And so after storms, the keepers of the house of refuge would walk in either direction and look for survivors.
0: Sumner Increase Kimball led the U.S. Life-Saving Service from its creation in 1871 until it merged with the U.S. Revenue Cutter Service in 1915 to form the U.S. Coast Guard.
1: He was a brilliant bureaucratic supervisor, and he was, it was his brainchild because the uh, embryonic life-saving service was in terrible shape and wasn't functioning properly, so he envisioned Uh, a properly run one, and he was working in the Treasury Department, and uh, he uh, envisioned a reformed, improved life-saving service, and he was in charge of it the whole time. He had it such, uh, divided into districts, and there were always reports, so there's voluminous paperwork surviving.
0: Under the direction of Sumner Increase Kimball, the activities of the Houses of Refuge were quite well documented, including detailed annual reports.
1: What's interesting is when I connected with Timothy Dream, and he is the president of the uh, U.S. Life-Saving Heritage Association. It's a national group. It's not a large group, but it's a very effective group. And on their website today, you can go and you can go through all the annual reports so you get all that primary documentation and uh, it's so improved from the days of yore when you had to go to microfilm.
0: Thurlow and Dring assembled hundreds of photographs for their book, U.S. Life Saving Service, Florida's East Coast, while written records for the houses of refuge were plentiful, photographs were not.
1: Sandra Thurlow. Each one is precious and uh, for instance, a few years ago I was here at the Florida Historical Society giving a talk and one of the people in the audience gave me a lead about a person who was in the Coast Guard and that was what evolved from the life-saving service. And uh, I connected with this man, Wally Wallace, and got two more precious pictures. Each one is precious. and. Another big fine recently was because of Florida Frontiers. I heard an interview of a granddaughter of a House of Refuge keeper, Samuel Coutant, who had been a keeper for 22 years at the Mosquito Lagoon House of Refuge. And this woman had been 87 when she was interviewed by Janie Gould. But, and it was like three years later that I listened to the podcast And uh, Janie said, oh, I have her phone number, and I called her, and she's perky, and my husband and I visited her, and she had the first ever uh, pictures I had of the keeper in a uniform doing day-to-day activities at a house of refuge. So that's an example of just building uh, a few at a time, the photograph collection,
0: In addition to the ten houses of refuge that were unique to Florida, there were also life-saving stations here. The houses of refuge were manned by a keeper and his family, while the life-saving stations were staffed by professional crews. While Thurlow's book focuses on Florida's east coast, she does include the Santa Rosa Island life-saving station near Pensacola.
1: I included the one in Santa Rosa because it was the only one besides the one on the east coast of Florida, in Florida. And I also included uh, the Sullivan's Island Coast Guard Station in Charleston, close to Charleston, South Carolina, because that was in our same district. And so it involved, involved the same uh, men. They went back and forth and crew members at the Sullivan's Island uh, Lifesaving Station became keepers in Florida.
0: Today you can visit Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge in Stewart. It's on the National Register of Historic Places and is preserved as a museum. Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge is the only one of 10 still standing.
1: Yes, it is, it's been uh, something I've continued to do. I won't give up because I think it is one of the more important parts of really early Pioneer Florida and that's my primary interest, the really early days in Florida. And it's just not appreciated. So many people are enthusiastic about lighthouses and even the life-saving stations that are uh, elsewhere in the country. But the poor houses of refuge are just not appreciated as far as their importance. And they form such a structure for the governmental presence in Florida when there was nothing here. So people at least had that.
0: Houses of refuge were unique to Florida. In the late 1800s, even if shipwreck survivors made it to land, conditions here were
1: formidable. Coincidentally, the most exciting time ever in a house of refuge was right there at Gilbert's Bar. And it was in October uh, 1904. There were two shipwrecks back to back, and there were 22 men put up in the house of refuge. As a result of those shipwrecks, quite a few casualties involved. But uh, one has become an underwater archaeological site right off of the Gilbertsboro House of Refuge. People dive on it, and on a calm day, you can see a bit of the the wreckage uh, from the House of Refuge porch. But uh, two ships, the George's Valentine and the Casado, wrecked within 24 hours, I would say.
0: Shipwrecks didn't happen every day, of course. The ten houses of refuge in Florida were mostly occupied by families, and daily life could be slow-paced. Sandra Thurlow.
1: I don't think daily life was so bad for the keeper, but for the wives. I just can imagine the loneliness and um, the hunger for other women to talk to, and that just didn't exist at the time. So uh, shipwrecks were very seldom And so it was just um, cooking, doing the duties of any housewife, and being lonely, and doing everything under hard conditions. And for our particular house of refuge, which is right on the ocean, uh, it must have been hard to cope with just the salt spray all the time.
0: There are many stories of individual keepers of the Houses of Refuge and their family members in the book, U.S. Life Saving Service, Florida's East Coast. Thurlow's favorite story is about a shipwreck survivor named Axel Johansson.
1: And this is his story, that he was Norwegian and he was in a shipwreck off of Chester Shoal House of Refuge. And he washed ashore with little life left in him. And uh, he passed out as soon as he got to the sand and two daughters of the House of Refuge uh, came and discovered him and told their parents, and they nursed him back to health, and he went back to Norway, and um, it was the days of sailing ships dwindling, and his life had changed, and he remembered Florida and the good reception and care he got in, uh, on Cape Canaveral, really, and he uh, came back and married one of the daughters, And I never had a picture of the daughter, and she was um, a, a descendant of a lighthouse keeper at Cape Canaveral Lighthouse, and her mother had only known being at the lighthouse or at the house of refuge, and I didn't have a picture, but I did just get it, a picture of Kate Johansson, Kate Quarterman Johansson, last fall, and it's included in the book.
0: When the U.S. Coast Guard was formed in 1915, it took control of the houses of refuge.
1: I think there were eight that were still standing then, and they became Coast Guard stations, and they all received a number. Like for instance, the Gilbert Spar House of Refuge was 207, and so Albert uh, Axel Johansson happened to be keeper, and Kate, the woman I just described, was uh, the wife there. And uh, so he became surfman number one, and she stayed there and cared for the crew. And for the first time, there was a crew at the House of Refuge instead of just being a family. And that was true with the other ones at the same time. They had a crew, and you have to realize uh, World War I came pretty soon, and so there were additional duties of surveillance and walking the beaches for security reasons.
0: After World War II, Florida's coastline was becoming much more populated, and the houses of refuge went out of service.
1: During times of war, the Coast Guard is under the Navy, the control of the Navy, and uh, so they had to patrol the beaches during World War II also, and also look for airplanes and, and keep their eyes out for everything, uh, and so uh, afterwards. They were decommissioned, and every single one of them is in public land now. Sandra
0: Thurlow and Timothy Dring are co authors of the book U.S. Life Saving Service Florida's East Coast, which covers the history of our state's unique houses of refuge. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to watch our public television series Florida Frontiers, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Dr. Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of Riches of Central Florida, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, you're Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly, as I just said. How has that journal changed over time?
2: There have been many changes, and yet there are some things, when you look back at it, that are persistent in the quarterly. Um, In the early years, in the very first issues of the quarterly, there was a lot of emphasis on primary documents, and this has been important to the furtherance of Florida history, that people had access to those primary documents. They were, they were printed in the quarterly. The articles we know from the papers of Julian Young and from the things that were written in his obituary, actually, that he called upon people to submit articles he called upon them. There's not the same sense of pursuing outside referees, uh, but just to have the articles. So he knew who he was asking, and he asked them to submit articles. He also wrote articles for the quarterly. Uh, By the time you get to the middle of the 20th century, it's not the case that the editor prints articles that he or herself wrote for the quarterly. Uh, So you began to see the editor dropping out in terms of of someone who submits to the quarterly. But that was certainly true in Julian Young's time that he wrote for the quarterly. From the very beginning, there were book reviews. uh, And the number of book reviews that are published goes up and down with any particular editor. But we've had some really interesting kinds of changes in terms of the type of content that has been in the quarterly and in the things that the Quarterly does beside just publishing the the issues themselves. And we know this from a project that we undertook, which was to map the Quarterly and know what had been published over uh, the first 90 years of the Quarterly. And what we see is a movement from a lot of of content that is focused on on politics and political history and the early period, to more content that includes social history, environmental history, women's history. We see a lot more of that after you get to about 1990. And so the the content itself has has changed over time. But we also see what we're delivering. Since 2000, we've started delivering a a lot of things um, that were not possible before. In the 70s and 80s, the quarterly was making... Cassettes available for people who were blind. The quarterly was read and you could get a cassette from the Florida Historical Society for it. But now what we see is a lot more digital. In the last few years, we've started offering the quarterly itself. You can get your quarterly as a print copy or you can get it digitally. We also began to archive the quarterly on large national and international storage units that made the quarterly available around the world. And we did that through JSTOR, which we still uh, continue to do. We also began to think about how we might reach people who are not necessarily uh, readers of The Quarterly all the time. So we began to publish podcasts with each issue of The Quarterly to talk to authors who wrote the articles and to talk about their research and, and other things. Uh, we began as well to think about publishing an e-journal, which will be opening in January. And that e-journal is available to all. It's it's open source. It will have articles that are directed specifically to teachers so that they have access to content in the journal. And those articles will be shorter, they will have fewer footnotes, uh, but they will they will be available as an open source for anyone to read. As I said before, we did map the quarterly. This was a big digital project that involved, Um, the University of Central Florida, the University of Virginia, and Ohio State University. And we digitally mapped 90 years of the quarterly to see what kind of content there was, how it had changed over time, was content connected more specifically to the editor, and how did content in the Florida Historical Quarterly match up with content in regional and national journals. This, I have to say, was a pilot project. We were the first journal to do this, uh, which kind of set us apart, uh, from, particularly from state journals. That same project has gone forward and has mapped large national journals now.
0: Well, a lot of people now enjoy the Florida Historical Quarterly in a digital format, but as you mentioned, it's also still available in print. Why have a print journal at all in this digital age?
2: Well... The Florida Historical Quarterly is, in fact, the journal of record. That means more to academics than it does to the general public. But what it means is that when academics are moving through the tenure process and they include articles from the Florida Historical Quarterly, the print copy is the copy of record. Um, It is important in academic tenure process. I think it's important for the journal as a whole to have the print copy. Uh, you can always go back and say, this is what was published at this time.
0: Well, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected every aspect of our lives. How has the pandemic affected publication of The Quarterly?
2: Well, like you said, it's it's affected everything. And one of the ways it's affected the publication of The Quarterly is that people who were preparing articles to submit to the quarterly suddenly found themselves not able to access the materials that they needed to complete. So we've seen a slowdown in the submission of, of articles. I think that will pick up once these libraries and archives are open again. It also, interestingly, has affected the book reviews because uh, I can see it in other journals of, of national journals, that they don't have as many books to review as they had before uh, because it slowed down the publication process. So it has slowed down. We will be, in fact, uh, for a couple of issues, we will be submitting a double issue to stay on track and not have to wait for things to come in.
0: Well, what else is in store for the future of the Florida Historical Court
2: I think it's really very open. I think there are lots of things we can do. As we move into the Florida Historical Quarterly's future, it will include a lot of digital things, more than we have had before. Uh, With the Riches Project, one of the ways in which that project works with the Florida Historical Quarterly is that we can put references to articles in the Florida Historical Quarterly and we can make them digitally available for people to see. So as we're working on that project, it intersects with others. And I, I think the, the quarterly has nowhere to go but up.
0: Great. Well, thanks, Connie. Thank you. Dr. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of Riches of Central Florida, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Efforts are underway to save the historic Lee School in Leesburg and transform it into an arts education center. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in COCO.
4: Over the next 11 months, we're featuring the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's 11 to Save list from 2020, highlighting the most threatened properties and resources in Florida. Members of the public nominate the historic properties and resources on the 11 to save list. Maria Stefanovich is the executive director at the Leesburg Center for the Arts. She nominated Lee School in Leesburg, Florida, for the 11 to save list.
5: The Lee School in Leesburg, it is a magnificent brick building that was built in 1915. There's actually two buildings on the property. The south building was built first and it was our first real public school in Leesburg. Lee School's South Building housed
4: grades one through 12 until the North Building was constructed and became the high school in 1923. Between 1928 and 1974, Lee School primarily served as an elementary school. During World War II, the school also functioned as a daycare for the children of those working in the war effort. In 1974, a cafeteria was constructed and it became Lee Adult Education Center providing Lake County citizens with an opportunity to earn their high school diplomas. At this point, it's not just one
5: specific generation that has a tie to this building. We have 20-somethings, 30-somethings that live here and work here and Leesburg's their home and, and they know they've been in those buildings. They know it, they feel it. So for us, it was a great building to keep and fight for.
4: Lee School's colonial revival architecture, the wooden staircases, the green painted walls and the hardwood floors evoke feelings of nostalgia for those who once roamed the building's halls. There's these two
5: brick buildings on this property and one is quite larger than the other, um, but the, the style is the same and it's these really awesome rustic bricks in great condition and it it's crazy. They're just really rich and these massive front doors. You've got three stories. So you're when you walk in, you're walking into the second level and there's these staircases and you've got these hints of like a really rich forest green, but you've got the woodwork, you've got old chalkboards that are still there and it's classroom after classroom after classroom and I, when I tell you like the space in there it's it's magical I mean it, it's just you've got these amazing hallways so uh, you can imagine the kids just shuffling through going to classes you know having the teachers right behind them so I, it's just a really awesome space to be in.
4: Because of its long history as a place of education Lee's school is special to many generations of Leesburgians. The school was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1995, but by 2008, the school was closed down and the property sat abandoned for years. It was purchased in 2014 and sold again, but continued to sit neglected. Maria Stefanovich,
5: I love that property. I love those two buildings. I drive by them every single day. I decided that why not nominate it for the 11 to save, uh, bring some awareness to the buildings, I was like, if we can do something, we can save this school because four generations of Leesburgians have gone to school here. It's still fresh in everybody's mind. The connection is still fresh. So there is no way that it just will expire. In 2018, the
4: property was bought by a new owner. Maria Stefanovich reached out to them with an idea to bring the school back to life.
5: You know, I am the director here at the Leesburg Center for the Arts. And one of our big dreams is to have a space of our own And so we uh, reached out to the owner of the property because he originally was looking to demolish both buildings. And We reached out to him and said, hey, why don't we partner up? Maria
4: Stefanovich is working with the city of Leesburg and the new property owner to save the buildings, renovate them, and reuse them as an arts education center and studio space for artists. To learn more about the Florida Trust and the 11 to save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and healthy and have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle.